0: Hi, welcome back to Bullet Points. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Gregory Magarian, Professor of Law at Washington University School of Law in St. Louis, with expertise in First and Second Amendment law. Professor Magarian served as a judicial clerk for Justice John Paul Stevens of the U.S. Supreme Court and has been published widely in leading law journals. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Professor Magarian.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Um, starting first about your background, could you tell us how you came to pursue your scholarship on the First Amendment and then this Second Amendment, First Amendment crossover?
1: So the First Amendment was my first love. I was my my dad was a journalist and I grew up hanging out in the newsroom a lot, and so I had this sort of you know romance of the of the press that that went back very far in my life. and And then as I got older and started to think about politics and law, uh, free speech issues seemed very interesting to me. Um, and when I decided to go to law school at a point along the way, I was, I was doing well in school. And one of my professors told me, Hey, you could be an academic and it's a great life. And you can think about things that you want to think about and care about. And I thought that sounded great. So that got me going. And I, once I sort of aimed myself toward an academic career, I knew that I wanted to focus on free speech issues. The second amendment piece came about in sort of a funny way. And I think a lot of people in legal academia who write about the second amendment have stories somewhat like this but you know studying or focusing on second amendment law wasn't really a thing for very many people until the heller decision there were people on the gun rights side i think who were you know activists and and agitators around this issue wanted to change the status quo but on the more you know pro regulation gun rights skeptical side it wasn't kind of much of a niche until the Supreme Court made Second Amendment law a thing, and so for me, after Heller, uh, I you know was just reading a bit and saw that courts were starting to borrow from First Amendment doctrine to build Second Amendment doctrine. And I read some of these cases and just thought that the courts were doing a sort of bad and specious job in a lot of circumstances of, of drawing these connections between the First and Second Amendments. It was it was just really kind of petty annoyance on my part. And so uh, I, I parlayed that annoyance into an article and one, one quality that I've always been very consistent about in my legal scholarship is that I, I always manage to find things to write about that very, very few people ever care about reading. But with the Second Amendment thing, for the first time, I kind of stumbled into a field that was hot. I, I had no intention of, you know, being uh, topical or interesting, but it just kind of worked out that way that people were, you know, saw this this. Linkage between the first and second amendments is interesting, and this is back in 2011. So obviously, that conversation has gotten a lot more uh, robust and and more interesting to more people over time. And and so because of that, I got you know pulled by some great people, Joseph Bloker, who was one of your previous guests, uh, into conversations and symposia about the Second Amendment. And I've since written more, and I'm working on a book project now. So it's it's just sort of become my kind of secondary interest, but because the linkages between the First and Second Amendment are so rich and interesting, and I think problematic, it's 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 something I've spent a good deal of time on.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, trajectory. Um, I wanna ask you real quick before we move on, uh, how, what was it like clerking for Justice Stevens? I mean, that is such a unique experience. What was that, you know, what was that like in your time?
1: Yeah, it, it was amazing. I mean, it, it, it was something, it was one of those things that I was just incredibly fortunate to get to do. I, you know, I had good credentials coming out of law school, but so did a lot of other people. And it's it's one of those things that just, it's such rarefied air that you've got to be good and you've got to be really, really lucky. And I was really lucky. Um, it, it was a year and, you know, I went to work at the Supreme Court. I mean, <laughs> I lived in Washington, DC. I was there already, so that was nice. But I, you know, that, that was my, my workplace and it was just hard to wrap your head around, but, um, it was amazing to have at that beginning stage in my career, mentoring and guidance and modeling from such an incredibly accomplished, uh, gifted, dedicated, just every good thing that I could possibly say, I would say about Justice Stevens, an amazing human being and a brilliant legal mind. Um, and the scary thing, thinking back on it, is how little I knew, uh, yeah, I was just out of law school, I had clerked on a district court for a year, I just didn't know that much. And and so, you know, when you start to think about, man, did I actually provide anything useful? It it becomes a a black hole very quickly, But, um, but I learned a ton from it and it's one of those formative experiences. And it's definitely cool to kind of be in, you know, behind the scenes and contributing, assisting with, the production of legal doctrine and, and sort of knowing what's going on while the rest of the world is anxiously waiting to find out what's going on. Uh, there's a definite rush about that. And then after a year you're done and you turn in your you know, identification card and you're on the outside again, uh, it's, it's quite something.
0: That is incredible yeah I'm I'm sure you're selling yourself short and you provided quite a lot but um yeah I'm that's incredible
1: the, the way the way the system works with judicial clerkships this is how it usually is you know it's people right out of law school and I think the the idea is judges and justices generally don't want people who are extremely, experienced and knowledgeable. That's the judge's job. They want people who are smart and young and energetic and can pull all-nighters and can do the research and maybe bring a little bit of a fresh eye to things. But uh, it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That that must have been an incredible experience. Um, uh, Before we jump in as well to the full discussion of this, you know, crossover between the First and Second Amendment, um, you know, we, we have talked about the Second Amendment on the podcast before you mentioned Dr. Blocher, but uh, I wanted to ask you as an intro question, what do we know so far about what the Second Amendment does and doesn't say? What is the Supreme Court's opinion on that? And, you know, how how might that change? <laughs>
1: So what we know so far is actually quite limited at the Supreme Court level. I mean, there have only been really these two significant decisions uh, in Heller and McDonald, uh, going back now uh, a decade, and and you know, there have been a couple in the interim, a couple of minor decisions, but nothing that has really fleshed out any of the significant remaining questions. So Heller is is still you know the first big case, really the font of most of what we know. Um, Uh, There is an individual Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Uh, That individual right uh, effectively forecloses blanket bans on handgun possession. Uh, The bans in question were focused on the home, and so by the terms of of the Heller and McDonald decisions, what we know about the law is really about how the Second Amendment protects the ability to possess firearms for self-defense in the home, so that means that the Supreme Court before now, the current cases is, is, could resolve a, a whole lot more. But up until this point, we don't really know anything about the Second Amendment's uh, effects on public carry uh, regulations of different kinds. The, um, the Heller opinion gives some guidance suggesting that a, a, a lot of uh, conventional types, sort of familiar types of firearms regulations might not run afoul of the Second Amendment. Uh, it mentions the opinion mentions in particular um, sort of unusual, dangerous uh, firearms. Uh, we get a sense that uh, prohibitions related to uh, felony convictions, things like that might be OK, um, but we don't know about uh, uh, so-called assault weapons bans, for example. Um, so there's a lot about nature of weapons, degrees of regulation, and sort of objects of regulation, particularly the public versus home dichotomy, that the Supreme Court up to this point has not resolved. And lower courts have certainly said a lot about uh, various of these issues. Lower courts have built a lot of doctrine. But with the Supreme Court seemingly now poised to revisit the Second Amendment and come back and flesh out some of these questions, uh, the lower court work over the past decade feels a lot more uh, provisional than it has uh, up till now. I guess the other big thing I could add would have to do with structures of legal analysis. So the Supreme Court in Heller and McDonald didn't really announce a test or standard. It certainly made clear that it was treating... Uh, this newly minted Second Amendment individual right as a serious fundamental right, and that suggested that review of this right would probably be on some kind of par or with some kind of parity with uh, review of other established constitutional rights like First Amendment rights. But there's a lot of variation within uh, established rights doctrines. So the lower courts have developed kind of an analysis that um, in 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 the parlance of of sort of rights review, I guess you could call a species of intermediate scrutiny. You know, definitely a form of heightened constitutional scrutiny, uh, but not one that has seemed in practice to rise to the level of the strictest scrutiny that gets applied, for example, to racial discrimination, uh, content-based restrictions on speech. So that's another thing that the Supreme Court may well be poised to resolve more clearly to sort of make a clearer statement about the degree of constitutional exactitude that courts are going to have to apply going forward to Second Amendment claims.
0: So what is the scope of this dynamic between the First and Second Amendment? Are we talking about conflicting rights or conflicting interests? And I know in your papers, you've mentioned that there might, there might perhaps be a difference between the two. You know, What, what is that difference? And uh, you know where does this dynamic between the First and Second Amendment exist uh, in that space?
1: So great question. And this is something that I've tried to make some sense of. Um, to, to say that there is a conflict between rights, a literal conflict between rights, is a very particular and strong statement. It's a suggestion that in some set setting, in some circumstance, um, you can't reconcile a person's claim of a First Amendment right with another person's claim of the Second Amendment right. And I have not seen too many instances that I would say rise to, that level. I think what's much more common and what I've talked a lot about is what you aptly described as a conflict between First Amendment and Second Amendment interests. So it it, it isn't a, cert, a circumstance where a court would have to, you know, attempt to resolve strictly conflicting constitutional claims, but we're talking more about a circumstance. The classic example of this is public political protest, where there is a strong First Amendment interest that ultimately leads to, culminates in a First Amendment right, of course, to protest, to go out in public and march and rally and picket and advocate for political issues that you care about. Um, And on the Second Amendment side, on the gun rights side, There's, of course, been an increasing movement toward uh, uh, public carry, sometimes very demonstrative public carry, and sometimes public carry sort of directly within the context of uh, sort of classic political protests. Um, So I could fashion an argument as a lawyer that there could be circumstances like that where there's literally a clash between First and Second Amendment rights, but the sort of easier and maybe more consequential thing to say that covers more of the ground, is I think there's a really important conflict, at least between First and Second Amendment interests. The big concern from the First Amendment side is that if you're engaged in a public political protest, which even when it's peaceful daylight protest is is often a very fraught thing that can involve counter protests and and a a certain number of raw nerves, if you introduce guns, you know, publicly displayed guns, into that setting, it can uh, cause intimidation. It can create a well-founded fear on the part of people who are unarmed. Um, it can suggest that the uh, uh, tensions are are escalating. Um, you know, and and one sort of end point of all of that is, is Kyle Rittenhouse. And, and now that's, a, uh, that's near where I grew up. I grew up in Milwaukee. We're talking about Kenosha. You know, That's a, a nighttime protest, uh, a lot of different kinds of behavior going on from sort of conventional, uh, uh, just verbal and demonstrative protesting to some degree of vandalism and physical violence. Um, but you know, everybody saw what happened. Uh, people died. People were shot and killed in the context of what was fundamentally a political protest, and that doesn't happen if there aren't, you know, if Kyle Rittenhouse isn't there with his uh, weapon and and others, uh, and 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 so you know that's the most dramatic instance we've seen of this particular kind of conflict. But I think it it serves pretty well to illustrate the nature of the broad concern. Um, people should be able, in my view, to engage. Uh, actively, robustly in political uh, protest with a very secure knowledge that if they, um, you know, behave like most people behave in political protest, which is peacefully and, and you know, maybe engage in civil disobedience, but not in violence, that they don't have to fear violence. Um, now, you know, biggest source of fear of violence, unfortunately, when it comes to political protests, has conventionally been from police. Uh, but now we've got a different kind of fear uh, of uh, potential violence from armed uh, uh, adversaries, antagonists, and and that I just don't think that's something that 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 people should ever have to be afraid of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, it's interesting, both you know, when you're talking about public assembly and public protest, uh, and and the Second Amendment. There's that uh, the the relationship where they are both explicitly rights of the people in the text of the Constitution. Um, yeah. And so I think that may, maybe gets to the question of individual versus collective rights, because both of those you know have been debated over whether they apply to the individual and the, the collective, um, you know, or individual and collective speech as well. Um, so how do those fault lines break down, and what might you say about the future of the dynamic? between the two amendments?
1: So one, one thing I should probably take this occasion to say is that um, unlike very sensible, responsible and, and strategically thoughtful people such as Joseph Bloker and Daryl Miller and a lot of people with whom I agree about almost everything, I tend to be um, a little bit more uh, thoroughgoing in my critique of Heller. I think from a standpoint of political strategy, it makes sense to say, look, Heller is the law, and there's a lot that Heller doesn't settle, and so we can work with that. Um, And Joseph and Daryl and other people have done really, really good work coming from that perspective. Um, I choose to sort of lead with the proposition that I think Heller was wrongly decided, and of course, I acknowledge Heller is the law and, and that we have to deal with that. But I think it's important to continue to sort of shine a light on just the incredibly specious reasoning of that case. And, and, and the the heart of it is, and the reason I, I say all this is, is what you're talking about, the individual versus collective right. Heller essentially reads the preamble, the militia clause out of the second amendment. Um, uh, Justice Scalia and Heller gave a sort of uh, half-baked explanation of, of how the preamble is is just sort of, you know, explanatory guidance, basically. And, and that's ridiculous. I, one of the first things I thought, actually, when I came to think about the Second Amendment coming from a First Amendment background, I remember thinking, wow, We on the First Amendment side and the First Amendment scholars and thinkers, we spend a whole ton of time just perpetually arguing about the purpose of the First Amendment. And and those are not idle arguments. Uh, Depending on what you think the First Amendment is trying to do, what its purpose is, that's going to lead to different outcomes in all kinds of interesting areas, campaign finance being one obvious one, where there are kind of First Amendment arguments on both sides of the big debate. And I remember thinking, if we had a First Amendment preamble, man, that would solve all kinds of problems. That would be great. How awesome would it be to have a preamble? And here you get the Supreme Court wasting a perfectly good preamble uh, attached to the Second Amendment. And, you know, that's kind of a flippant way of thinking about it. But I actually sort of believe that, like the framers of the Bill of Rights did not write a great many words. They don't, you know, attach a preamble to the Second Amendment just as a sort of gloss on, oh, you know, here's kind of roughly what we're talking about in spirit. They were obviously serious about the Second Amendment being linked to the organized militia, to the idea that the Second Amendment is a right that has a collective purpose. Um, Now, one source of anxiety that that argument causes and has caused in more contemporary uh, debates is we don't have a militia now the way that we did in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And that's true. And sometimes that happens with provisions of law, even provisions of constitutions. They have defined meanings, and those meanings lose significance or lose scope over time. And in my view, that is what we would conclude upon a correct uh, interpretation of the Second Amendment, that the Second Amendment uh, is one provision by virtue of its specificity that just doesn't really have any operative work to do in the conditions of you know, twentieth even and certainly twenty first century American life. And I think because the Supreme Court majority in Heller did not want to reach that conclusion, uh, which I think is a logically correct and and even logically necessary conclusion, the court had to just blow off the Second Amendment preamble. So and, so, and there's there's even another interesting dimension to this. The court in Heller and and setting the stage for the development of Second Amendment law says, okay, what the Second Amendment is really about is individual self-defense. And part of the reason for that is that historically, going back, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm not an originalist, so I don't like to, you know, claim that my sense of original anything is authoritative, but I think it's a pretty easy conclusion to draw about the Second Amendment as it was originally Uh, uh, constructed, that the idea with the militia did have a lot to do with the fear of governmental tyranny, and particularly federal governmental tyranny, and the idea that the militia could serve as a counterpoint to the federal government's Governmental monopoly on force and the federal government's superior, or supreme monopoly on force. That if the federal government became tyrannical, um, the Second Amendment and the maintenance of a citizen militia uh, created a vehicle by which people could throw off tyranny. This is a civic republican idea. The thing is, it's a fairly crazy idea, and and I think even I think that the framers of the Constitution. There's some really good writing about this by a guy named David Williams at University of Indiana. Um, who's been very influential in my thinking i read some conclusions that are different from his um, so i don't know if he would you know appreciate the shout out but i think he's a brilliant guy and has 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 said some really interesting things coming out of the history of the second amendment um, the this sort of insurrectionist idea is is very romantic even in the context of its time it's you know these these of the constitution driven by really strong civic republican ideals and okay we believe that the people can rise up as one if the government becomes tyrannical and then pretty quickly you get these sort of frontier rebellions and the powers that be in the early republic are are kind of saying oh my god this this is crazy these people who are rebelling against governmental authority are 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 lunatics um, with you know, bizarro special interests driving their, their violence. And it becomes apparent, I think, to most people fairly quickly that, okay, this idea that the people acting collectively, this is William's big argument, you know, that, that they would rise up as one with unitary purpose and a unitary understanding of tyranny to overthrow a tyrannical government. That's really not going to work. That's, that's, that's kind of nuts. So, and and, 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 you know, then sort of, overlay January 6th and we've had recent experience with insurrection now. So if you're an advocate for second amendment rights, there's sort of two problems you're dealing with. One is, uh, when we're talking about this collective versus individual thing, you want to sort of foreground the individual, right? The, the court affirmatively wanted to do that in Heller to make the second amendment about something that was never supposed to be about, I don't think, which is individual self-defense in present day social conditions. But then at the same time, when you're thinking about the possibility of a collective explanation for Second Amendment rights, you're wanting to push that into the background because you want to foreground the, the individual thing and you want to push the collective thing into the background because the collective thing is the insurrectionist argument. And that sounds crazier in the 21st century and especially after January 6, 2021, uh, even than it ever has before. So, but that's what the Second Amendment, I think, in its essence was more designed to deal with. So we've got this weird displacement of uh, the Second Amendment's purpose by this kind of new purpose that the modern contemporary Supreme Court has grafted onto it, ironically, in the name of history and original constitutional interpretation, which is just, I could go on about that irony for a long time, but I won't. Okay, and I think I only answered half your question because you asked about the Second Amendment and the First Amendment. The First Amendment, I'll be, I think a little bit more straightforward. The First Amendment and First Amendment law doctrine as it is developed is clearly both about individual interests and collective interests. In form, the rights guaranteed by the First Amendment are individual rights. But even there, there's a caveat because the right of assembly is inherently collective. the right of the free press is generally one that is uh, exercised by institutions of one kind or another. And we've long recognized that even the basic right of free speech uh, entails often speech by institutional entities of one kind or another. You don't have to agree with the Citizens United decision to believe that institutions of some kinds have, have uh, spe- speech rights that should be protected and vindicated. So the First Amendment has, uh built into it and, and and in its development a lot of complexity when it comes to individual versus collective um the second amendment is more as i've described more problematic in that way i think it's
0: really interesting how the politics of a case like the second amendment ends up sort of shaping the justice's perspective on individual versus collective and perhaps also originalism versus textualism and all that. It's, it, it, it seems to very much warp what we might consider the traditional ways that, uh, that uh, rights end up being considered politically. But I wanted to move on as well to the uh, current case before the Supreme Court. Uh, what are your general thoughts on New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin? Um, uh, what is the principal question of the case and how do you see that case playing out?
1: So the case is really, without you know, cutting to the chase, it's it's about uh, public carry and possession of guns outside the home, and that's I'm, I'm making that sort of a general statement, partially because uh, the big question that everybody is interested in knowing is how deeply, how far is the court going to go? How 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 deeply is the court going to develop Second Amendment law? And I was smiling when you asked, you know, what do you think about this case because. On one level, my answer is I try not to think about it very much, just because I'm very afraid of what's going to happen. We, we, so, to put this in a little bit of context, the court decides Heller and MacDonald, five-four decisions, and then is basically silent on the Second Amendment. And um, Justice Scalia had written Heller, and Justice Alito had written McDonald, and these guys are certainly, you know. Trustworthy true believers in gun rights, but it's Justice Thomas more than anybody else who, in the intervening years, is sort of agitating at the margins, writing some dissents from denial of Sir Sherari, saying the lower courts aren't taking gun rights seriously enough, they're treating the Second Amendment like a second-class right, and we should be taking cases to clarify that you know the Second Amendment is a first-class right and that gun rights are really, you know constitutional protection for gun rights is really strong, and the rest of the court's majority. Doesn't really seem to have any interest in in following along with that. Then Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch joins the court um, and seems to, you know, have a little bit more sympathy with the Justice Thomas position. Alito may also have, you know, sometimes expresses some of the same sentiments. And then we get the big change, of course, which is the replacement of uh, Justice Ginsburg, the late Justice Ginsburg, with Justice Barrett. And we don't know. Exactly. Justice Parrott doesn't have a a long paper trail on Second Amendment issues, but based on her general orientation, there's no reason to believe that she'll be anything other than another very reliable conservative vote on the court on this issue and many other issues. So suddenly you've got a six, three, uh, very strongly conservative majority. And even Justice Roberts' Uh, Chief Justice Roberts institutionalism, which might cause him and I I suspect has caused him to discourage his colleagues from, you know, wrestling too much with the Second Amendment, because it's a fraud issue um, that's going to make headlines and bring all kinds of positive and negative attention on the court. His view isn't enough to prevail anymore, because if the other five conservatives decide they want to make hay on the Second Amendment is sort of similar dynamic with the uh, likelihood or possibility that Roe versus Wade will be overruled. The institutionalist doesn't, doesn't have the swing vote to say, okay, let's cool our jets here. I'd love to do what you guys want to do, but I'm afraid of the consequences. Um, you know, he's got to get one of the other five to agree with him in order to put any kind of brakes on, on what the court is doing. So we got a range of possibilities with the New York case. Um, One possibility is that the court could use it as a very broad vehicle for uh, fleshing out and strengthening gun rights in all kinds of directions, making comprehensive statements about public carry. Um, It would be, I think, relatively easy for the court to do that. Um, There's a possibility, I don't think it's a very strong possibility that the court will continue to be uh, somewhat Modest and incrementalist in its approach to the Second Amendment, and not say very much. It might just say that the New York law here was just too extreme, and the extent to which it restricted uh, uh, transport and, and possession of guns outside the home, you could certainly rule narrowly without. You know, it's not difficult to imagine how how that would look, and and it would mean that a certain number of rigid laws like New York's here would be struck down. But but. Uh, it wouldn't be super consequential. The other possibility, which is, you know, realistic, and and here's, I really can't give odds on this, is that the court could be both um, interested in strengthening the Second Amendment and somewhat incrementalist. That is, the court could, could say, you know what, we've got plenty of time, uh, there might be reasons either of timing or of the circumstances and particulars of the New York case uh, that might lead us, uh, the conservative majority, not to want to build a huge edifice on this case. So we'll be relatively narrow here, but we will make clear that we are going to be back in the Second Amendment business going forward, and we'll just take a multiplicity of cases over over a period of years and and build the Second Amendment and strengthen the Second Amendment that way. Um, I could see that happening but I, I don't feel like I've got enough of a handle on the nuances of the case, let alone the minds of the Supreme Court majority to know whether they would be likely to take that path.
0: So, so should the court rule in favor of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, which as you said, is a likely possibility, uh, gun rights outside the home would be constitutionally recognized. What impact might that have on this question of the First Amendment, Second Amendment dynamic?
1: So first of all, to, to to reiterate and to sort of preface this, it depends on how far the ruling goes. One thing about Supreme Court decisions, so if the question is, is the court going to rule in favor of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association? I'd say the answer is almost certainly yes, unless they find, uh, uh, you know, accept some procedural argument to, to uh, ditch the case. Um, but I can't see a scenario where they uphold the law on its merits. So they're going to rule in favor of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, other things being equal. The question is how much do they say? Like the law of the the important effect of a Supreme Court opinion isn't just uh, how the judgment comes out in which party wins. It's the nature of the reasoning and how much that reason what implications that reasoning has for other law. To take just one illustration of this, I alluded briefly a few minutes ago to the Citizens United case, this notorious campaign finance case. I am a like aggressive critic of Citizens United as a lot of other people are, but I don't actually think the result as between the parties in the case was wrong. I think for various reasons that this organization Citizens United itself, because it was essentially, a it wasn't a business corporation, it was a small uh, not-for-profit political advocacy group, I think Citizens United had a valid First Amendment claim that it should not be restricted in its ability to show this movie that it was showing. The Supreme Court could have said that, and none of the stuff that people have argued about over the past you know, 15 or not quite 15 years about Citizens United would be on the table. But what the Supreme Court did instead was rule that way, but along the way say a whole lot of really broad stuff about corporate speech and the, Rights of person you know, speakers, regardless of their status and, and identity, to speak that caused the controversy and overruling prior precedents. So, same thing with the Second Amendment case. Like, how, the, so to go to your question, first of all, on the Second Amendment level, the implications of the ruling. Um, for public possession of firearms depend completely on the breadth of the ruling. It would be possible, again, for the court just to say, look, New York just went too far here. We're not going to opine broadly on whether there is any sort of uh, weighty, robust uh, public carry right under the Second Amendment. We're just going to say that you can't do what New York did here. Um, which would be kind of the form, a little bit like what the court did in Heller and McDonald. I mean, Heller and McDonald were more momentous because they resolved the question whether there was an individual Second Amendment right at all. But in terms of what kinds of laws are invalid under the Second Amendment, this goes to the first question you asked. The only kinds of laws that are really obviously necessarily invalid based on the reasoning of Heller and McDonald are blanket handgun bans um, and maybe certain kinds of laws that tacitly amount to blanket handgun bans. Um, all the other stuff we don't strictly know about. So the court could do a similar thing in in the New York case and just say you can't impose this particular degree of restrictions on transport and possession outside the home. On the other hand, the court could say, okay, the underlying principle that causes us to to strike down the New York law is that there is the broad right to public carry that the Second Amendment applies equally outside the home and inside the home. And um, maybe that comes, maybe the court says that with caveats. Uh, as again, Heller included some important caveats, or maybe not. So all of those variables go into how significant that would be. All right. If we assume that the court does something relatively broad and significant and says, there is a meaningful uh, public carry right, that could very directly and importantly influence uh, the first, second amendment dynamic, because for example, uh, it might become based on the supreme court's ruling a lot harder for law enforcement on a instance by instance basis to in any way police the presence of firearms in public protests um, There's an irony I mentioned before that what protesters often have to fear is the police, but when we introduce armed counter protesters or you know uh, armed freelance self-appointed security or whatever they're calling themselves in a particular instance. At that point, the unarmed protesters are kind of depending for protection on the police and in and, and fairness and justice to the police, they often provide that protection um, uh, very, very professionally. Sometimes they don't, but often they do. So if if it becomes harder, if, if police on the ground in these situations are forced to say, look, there's nothing we can do. These Open carry people are entirely within their rights to open carry, and if they, you know, if there's a swarm of them, as long as they don't brandish their weapons or take aggressive action, you know, you gotta, you unarmed protesters just have to live with their presence. Um, that shifts the balance and 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 amps up the the anxiety I think that unarmed people in those situations um, would have. Um, and then you know, if if, if just if the New York case or a subsequent case, for that matter, is an occasion for a general kind of strengthening of Second Amendment rights, there are a variety of other circumstances that I've identified as presenting, you know, tensions between First and Second Amendment interests. Um, there are all, all kinds of different things. One interesting thing that's come up is. Um, sort of gun privacy arguments, claims on the part of gun owners that uh, we should be protected from having our identities as gun owners or holders of gun licenses in licensing jurisdictions uh, publicly revealed because we'll be harassed. And uh, the argument that these folks make that I think is really funny, we're afraid our guns will be stolen, you know, which is funny because it's like the whole reason you have the gun is to protect yourself against burglars. And now you're saying you're just gonna lay your gun down somewhere and someone's gonna come and steal it. Um, the, the, the first amendment conflict there is a public information interest, like generally speaking, uh, all kinds of information about sort of governmental practices and relationships, including who has a gun license, uh, are publicly available because we generally believe in open records and open information. You could imagine a world in which the court says, Hey, the second amendment is, is, you know, really has this primacy is a fundamental right and that has all kinds of implications and courts start to say okay um there is you know second amendment uh, protects gun owners privacy um in a much more sweeping way than courts have recognized up to this point point. and that you know it's not as dramatic as making protesters fear for their lives but i think it would be a bad thing if if there's this sort of strong rule that prevents the public from being informed about an important public issue, which obviously gun possession and gun proliferation is. Um, So depending on how far the court goes now or later, there are all kinds of ways in which First Amendment interests could be undermined in in serious ways.
0: Uh, I wanted to ask you in particular about one way that one amicus brief brought up. This was an amicus brief filed by a New York City religious leaders that argues that a decision in favor of the New York State Rifle and Postal Association uh, that would make uh, that uh, decision that would make concealed carry licenses more easily accessible would damage First Amendment rights. And particularly, obviously, because they're religious leaders, the uh, right to the free exercise of religion and the right of people to assemble. Um, What do you think of this point? And, you know, I know that this is sort of uh, maybe not exactly exactly what you've been focusing on but what role does free exercise of religion might have in that conflict between the first and Second Amendment interests
1: so I have I have in my work done a little bit of writing about uh, the religion clauses although not in conjunction with the Second Amendment it's an interesting uh, an interesting question an interesting thing to think about I'll start by by broadening the point a little bit uh, because it does relate to some other things as well so there are, and this is a, a familiar form of gun regulation, different kinds of institutional settings in which governments either allow or mandate gun restrictions. Um, so, in the simplest form, uh, there are plenty of regulations, a fairly commonplace uh, legal state of affairs, to say that uh, owner private business owners may, in their discretion, assuming uh, open carry is. Generally legal, decide that they wish to prohibit uh, guns within their establishments. Um, there are laws that mandate uh, gun limits within government buildings. The one that people point to a lot uh, as a sort of irony, particularly in conservative states like my state of Missouri, being rules that say you can't bring guns into the state capitol. Um, so you know you can't have a firearm in the gallery to watch the legislature pass more and more uh, permissive gun regulations, uh, permissive everywhere, but but where it's happening. Um, uh, you know, uh, public libraries. One, one big one that people like me think about a lot because it affects our self-interest is universities. I happen to teach at a private university, which can do whatever it wants and does uh, maintain a gun-free campus. But at public universities, in a lot of you know big pro-gun rights states, there's been legislation requiring that the universities uh, permit uh, concealed carry. And so people have argued, and this kind of is now dovetailing with the argument you're talking about from religious leaders uh, the activities that were engaged in uh, in the classroom, sometimes vigorous, contentious discussions, are like uh, political protests might be going to be suppressed and, and dampened by the fear that guns might be present. Concealed carry might not have quite as dramatic an effect in that regard as open carry, but in a lot of these uh, fights over campus, so called campus carry rules. The, the the debate is so prominent that that you know people reasonably assume okay somebody in this classroom of 100 people is going to be availing themselves of their uh, concealed carry rights in the religious setting it's 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 almost even more dramatic because many most religious communities to one degree or another um, you know maintain a, a an environment and a practice of sanctuary of of refuge from um uh, pressures and temptations and and evils of the outside world prominent among those uh, evils being violence. And and so these are places of peaceful worship and contemplation. Um, obviously different religious communities have different views and different attitudes, but I think that's a fairly ubiquitous attitude. And so, and of course, I, we can't talk about this without talking about the experience of violence that religious uh, uh That that you know religious communities have have had, uh, particularly um, you know we're not talking about majoritarian white Christian communities as much as we're talking about uh, Jewish synagogues and black Christian churches and. um, uh, Mosques and and you know other sort of minority religious uh, entities, so the fear of violence. I'm not a religious person, I'm not a member of a religious community, but I can't imagine, especially just thinking, uh, if I were Jewish, yeah, you i know, a lot of Jewish friends and a lot of friends who fall into all these categories, but what it would mean to know that um, the law was was making it easier for guns to be present in an area where I know people have, you know members of my community have been killed. Um, I can't imagine. Countenancing that. And and I would be, you know, so those folks are speaking out and I I support them and join them in speaking out against these kinds of permissions. So, yeah, like, now there are some people, uh, we've obviously had situations and arguments where it's the version of variation on the classic good guys with guns argument. Hey, we want to have people with concealed weapons in church because if some crazy person comes in from outside, then we've got someone who can defend the community. And, you know, that has happened but it hasn't happened very much in churches or elsewhere. Um, the good guys with guns argument is maybe the, the the greatest kind of emotional appeal that gun rights argument, the gun rights proponents make. One thing that it's predicated on is that we know the difference between the good guys and the bad guys with guns. Uh, you know, after the fact, if somebody shoots down a, a crazy person with violent intent, okay, we can say who was the good guy and who was the bad guy, I I can acknowledge that. But before the fact, when we're talking about what do we want the state of affairs to be, um, you know, who knows whether the person entering the church with the weapon is the good guy or the bad guy, is the person with ill intent or the person with benign intent. Um, So uh, I think I very well understand the arguments coming from religious leaders, and certainly this has implications for free exercise. There's a close parallel between free exercise and free speech. Not always, but formally, both of these rights are substantially about being able to engage in a kind of expressive activity. You can even say in some ways free exercise is is a a component or subset of free speech with its own special considerations driving it. the same kind of chilling concern, silencing concern, concern about about making people afraid in a situation where the last thing that they should have to be is afraid, those same considerations uh, come into the free exercise setting as well.
0: I wanted to piggyback on on one thing you mentioned there, that that idea of sort of guns as this protected element of a person. You know, I know you mentioned laws, and I've read about laws that sort of uh, differentiate from guns as a you know as opposed to like many other you know thing that one might possess as something that you can't discriminate on you know you can't tell someone that they can't bring a gun into this area or, or, or some element of private property could that perhaps also have a dynamic with First Amendment rights and particularly you know private property rights um, or when it comes to you know those individual freedoms of someone else coming into my space and uh, having a some sort of conflict over their gun ownership.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's very interesting. The rights that the, the the sort of substantive, uh, fundamental constitutional rights that that predate the Second Amendment, which is to say all of the other rights, um, have tended to be things that we think of in in fairly elemental terms. You know, some rights are literally rights of identity, rights against discrimination based on race or gender or sexual orientation, gender identity, religion. Um, you know, religion isn't an innate characteristic, but it's something that we think of as an innate characteristic, as tantamount to an innate identity characteristic. And then you've got speech and assembly um, and religious practice as opposed to to you know simple religious belief. These things are active but we very strongly distinguish these First Amendment protected rights from ordinary conduct. Um, and and a big part of that distinction as I think your the premise of your question takes into account is the idea that these are very personal things, that they are a part of who we are, that the ideas that we hold and that we might want to express are an important part of us that should not, uh, uh, presumptively should not be severed from us, that we should not have to um, disavow uh, or, or be forced to abandon. And if you think of guns that way, the implications are quite striking because for the first time you're thinking about an object, a thing, a thing that is designed for use and violent use in particular as elemental to a person's identity. And its I really like the question you asked because it's quite a profound notion and I think requires a A profound change or amendment to the way that we think about identity um, and the way that we think about the relationship between the government and the people. Like the First Amendment is predicated on the distinction between speech and action. Now, that's a philosophically unstable distinction, but you can't have constitutional speech protection without it. So we do the best we can with it. But the basic idea, as to which there are certainly plenty of easy instances, is that expression is one thing and conduct. Is another thing. The government presumptively can't regulate expression, the government presumptively may regulate conduct. What do you do with that distinction when suddenly you're talking about guns as if guns are like ideas, uh, like the ideas that we hold? Um, Then it seems to me it becomes difficult to resist potentially other arguments that that conduct that we might have previously thought of as, as easily within the scope of, of permissible government regulation is now somehow tantamount to identity. And to, to take a step back from the, all that highfalutin theory, I mean, I, look, I'm not a gun owner and I know that plenty of good people are and, and plenty of good people think about their relationship to gun ownership and gun proficiency, um, and, you know, enjoyment of, of rifle sports perhaps as, as things that are important to their identity. But as a constitutional matter to put that on the same plane as the ideas one holds or the faith one holds or the identity uh, that one possesses by virtue or any along dimensions of race or gender or anything else. Um, that just seems to completely rewrite the script of how we think about people and government and rights. And and at that point, the effect, the consequences of that new way of thinking for First Amendment rights is a becomes a relatively small part of the story, certainly a part of the story that I'm gonna continue to care about. But we're talking about a, a way of thinking that has all kinds of massive implications for how our society works at a very fundamental level.
0: Yeah, that is, that is so interesting. It, it does sort of seem like the more one looks at this topic, the more these conflicts and dynamics present themselves between, I guess, what people might generally consider to be sort of separate rights. Um, looking towards the future, wh- what are the cultural trends you see today around the considerations of First and Second Amendment questions? Um, and do you think increasing support for gun rights uh, will... Suppress free speech in the future, or can they continue to sort of be considered separately, at least by the courts?
1: Yeah, so I mean, a big premise of my work is is that we already see important collisions between speech interests and 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 gun interests, gun rights advocacy, um, and and I can only I, I don't see anything to suggest that that those collisions will become less significant or or less frequent. I think they're going to become more significant and more frequent, especially necessarily, if if our legal conception of gun rights uh, expands in any significant way, which it presumably will under this Supreme Court. So um, I think it's, you know, I wouldn't write as much about this stuff as I do and talk about it as much as I do if I didn't think it was it was really well, very important thing to be paying attention to. The question about cultural trends, so here's one angle on that. I think we are seeing, and this is not unusual, I I think First Amendment rights and ideas about free speech have always been, um, at least as long as I'm aware, uh, areas of of cultural conflict. Um, People think about Rights of speech and assembly and religion, for that matter, in different ways, and and those competing conceptions have different implications. I mentioned campaign finance as just one example, um, but different ideas about protest. You know, you've got um, people on the political left and the political right having very different views about what forms of political protest are acceptable and what forms of political protest cross over into unacceptable violence or antisocial behavior. One way of understanding, certainly the conflict uh, that that is and the debates that go on now about free speech does have to do with these categories of individual and collective. Um, Broadly speaking, there is a uh, On on the political right, a strongly sort of libertarian tendency in thinking about free speech free speech is about my autonomy to say what I want to say how I want to say it when I want to say it on the political left conceptions of free speech are generally more communitarian. Free speech is um, legally recognized, of course, as an individual right. But the purposes of that individual right are uh, really focused on collective flourishing, whether that's uh, facilitating democratic self-governance, whether it is the uh, pursuit of truth, whether it's the ability of communities to communicate and, and, and work out uh, conflicts within them. Uh, the political left sees, sees tends to see free speech in more collectivist or communitarian terms. And, and to put my cards on the table, I certainly am on the left and I fall very much into that camp. But there's certainly some people on the left who are more classically liberal, might not call themselves libertarians, but have more in common with that autonomy view. But it's broadly speaking, a left-right divide. What's interesting is that with gun rights, at at least as far as I'm aware, you know, there's plenty of action within the gun rights community that I'm not privy to. But it seems like on a broad cultural level, the debate about gun rights isn't within gun rights. It's about the validity of gun rights in the first instance, Um, the political left being more skeptical of and opposed to a robust understanding of gun rights and the political right being very committed to a robust understanding of gun rights. And That's kind of an interesting contrast, because it suggests to me, I mean, I think there are obvious political and I think also theoretical affinities between the very libertarian version of free speech theory and the mainstream of gun rights theory. So if our society comes to think of free speech more prominently in those terms, those libertarian uh, more, you know, we'll call it right libertarian terms, right wing libertarian terms. Then I think there will be a, a strong perception of, and to some extent, reality of harmony between free speech and gun rights. On the other hand, if the more communitarian vision of uh, free speech prevails, then the tensions and conflicts, and I think ultimate incompatibility of, of free speech and gun rights will become more apparent and more broadly uh, understood. And and that's very much at the root of my work saying, yeah, I care about public protest. I care about democratic self-governance. I care about communal flourishing and maintaining pluralistic communities. And all of that stuff is, those are the free speech interests that are undermined by what is fairly, uh, ubiquitously a uniformly libertarian idea about gun rights. The pos- I've considered and written about the possibility that you could come up with a communitarian explanation for gun rights, and I basically rejected it because, as we were discussing earlier, the communitarian explanation for gun rights is insurrectionism, and nobody in their right mind really wants to wrap their arms around that idea. Um, so the conflict, I guess, I guess what all of this is to say that conflicts about the meaning of free speech are very significant for figuring out what the relationship between free speech and gun rights, between speech interests and gun interests is going to be and is going to look like going forward.
0: That's an incredible answer. And, and before we wrap up, uh, I just want to say, is there any resources you'd like to shout out if listeners want to you know, learn more about this particular topic and niche of First Amendment and Second Amendment crossover?
1: Well, I, I wish I could, I wish I could point in my book that I haven't really finished writing it yet. Um, there, there are, um, I'll just mention a few people and, and their names that uh, partially have come up before but but in, in the legal academy, and there are people working on this in other other fields that, that I'm not as, as familiar with but uh, Joseph Blocher who was on your uh, podcast before his colleague Daryl Daryl Miller at Duke. Uh, Timothy Zick at William and Mary, Marianne Franks at Miami. These are the people in the legal academy that have written, uh, I think, the most and have all written very interesting and, and thought-provoking things about, uh, in various ways, the relationship between First and Second Amendment rights. And these days, I guess you can you know, put those names out there because folks who are listening to this can, can just go Google the, the names and find their work, most of which is available online. But, but those folks, in addition to the writing that I've done, I think that's the, the, the sort of core body of stuff on the, on the legal academic side that, that people might look, look at if they find this stuff interesting.
0: Thank you so so much for coming on the podcast, Professor McGuire, And this was incredible. I mean, it, was, it was so uh, amazing to learn about this this uh, way of seeing the second amendment. I hadn't really thought about it ever in that in that way. Thank you so much.
1: It's my great pleasure. Thanks for for having me and for for thinking this through. Asking so many thoughtful questions. It's it's great to get to engage about this stuff, and I really appreciate it.
0: I'm really really looking forward to uh, to reading your book when it when it does come out. Thank you so so much again.